Welcome to the Common Good Podcast, where change agents and social sectors, business, community, and faith meet at the intersection of belonging and imagination and gifts. I'm your host, Troy Bronsink from The Hive in Cincinnati, Ohio. What began as a friendship between uh, Peter Block and Walter Brueggemann and John McKnight has grown into a fellowship program that is now uh, 12 weeks in the making with 30 fellows working on experiments of imagination. This season focuses on the work of those fellows and advisors in the program. Today's episode is with Afina Cameron and Glenn Bennett, who are both from uh, New Zealand. Glenn comes with a background from the uh, faith-based sector and manages a social enterprise in Taranaki, New Zealand that works around leadership capacity and uh, community transformation. And Afina Cameron is a mother and an active tribal leader with the Maori people of New Zealand, where she's also the CEO of the Tutama Wahini Oteranaki organization. We knew that we couldn't just work with our own, we couldn't just work with Maori people. We wanted to make a place and a container for change that actually embraced the whole of our communities. And in order to do that, we had to find some common language across cultures. And that's really what Peter's work did for us. Our conversation with them begins as they come all the way from New Zealand to Cincinnati for one of our fellows gatherings. And we touch on such subjects as friendship and the significance of elders and the precarious relationships across cultures in this work of community transformation. We start off the conversation with Glenn introducing Afina. Kia ora koutou, this is Afina Cameron, uh, and she is from the land of Aotearoa, which you probably know as New Zealand. She's the CEO of Tutama Wahini o Taranaki, which is a indigenous liberation movement. You're doing well. Am I doing Pronunciations. Okay? <laughs> yeah, thanks. So, Afina, can you introduce us to Glenn now? This is my partner in crime at the moment, Glenn Bennett. He's from the same land, from, we're from the same region, we're from the same community. And just really a person who has his hands in many different, and legs and feet and fingers, works for a number of organisations actually. And so is actually a, a community connector, working with Community Taranaki and Incido, a national group, and has initiated a number of local movements around our peace province, although that's supposed to be secret, so it wasn't him. (laughs) On a real practical level, has been supporting some of the most vulnerable young men in particular of our community who have been abandoned or traumatized. So he's a very busy person. So I just searched it on my iPhone here, and I think New Zealand is more than 8,000 miles away from here. So it'll be interesting to explore the, the context difference, but just... This is a long way to come. What is it that brought you into this conversation? I, mean, I think it is a journey and, you know, our elders have seen something in us and have nudged and gently encouraged us to, to come and be present here over these few days. Uh, for me, it's really about connection. So we live in a very small, tiny part of the world at the bottom of the earth. I think it's pretty cool down there. But we are isolated and we have our own connections. So to come and be part of something bigger, something global, Taranaki's 105,000 people, the region where we live. So it's really small, even within New Zealand. And often you feel isolated in terms of we're just plodding along and being engaged, doing this stuff and being in our communities. Are we on the right path? Are we doing the right stuff? It's really, so it's been lovely in the last couple of days to, to meet people and to one hear that they're all asking the same questions that we are or kind of going, oh, I'm not sure if we're, we're actually making it either. But the fact you kind of go, oh, okay, that resonates with me. Or oh, that one that we're actually, like I kind of feel like we're, we're kind of doing okay. Hmm. 
And I think I came here. I came here wondering maybe you know we're going to meet all these amazing Americans and Canadians and you know, people from the UK and South Africa who are like you know miles ahead of us. But it's really nice to be here and to go. Yeah, we're actually. I think we're we're doing okay. Well, it's it's great having you, Afina. What brings you here? Yeah, I mean, for myself, it was about having an opportunity to really come out of the environment, the regular, everyday environment that we're in. Because I think I've also recognised that as an organisation, but also as a region, we're kind of walking along the cusps of, of two different kind of eras. We're moving from, from survival and recovery, and I think now at the moment we're on the cusps of recovery and development, where a lot of our tribal groups have gone through, I wouldn't call it a reconciliation process, but they've certainly gone through a settlement process mm. around settling the historical breaches of the past. And what that has meant is that there has been some a, a lot more resource and financial support now being available to our tribal groups. But I think there's a missing step in the sense that everybody kind of thought, well, we're settled, now what? How do we move from grievance into development? How do we start reclaiming our own development? For some, it's, it's, been, it's taken about um, 10 years of that process for them to realise that actually money doesn't heal. And so part of what I'm interested in, in getting is just having the time and the space and the networks to start thinking about where to from here. How can we start breaking out of the system that we have been fighting against for so long and put our energies into something that's solely focused on what we want to do as opposed to the the battle against the system it's just been good to kind of step outside of and i think mm. you have to step outside of that in order to get you know some reflection around where to what's the next steps so then what is it that brought the two of you together how would you describe the the partnership of how how you work together I would say it's really been a kind of a convergence of a few things. For about four or five years now, both of our organisations uh, have been working in friendship, and partnership is another word, but we prefer friendship, mm. doing some work to try and awaken our communities, just quietly create an army of active citizens, or just an army of activism. It's been about five years and what we recognised back then was that the level of disconnection, the fear of having a real and honest conversation, be it on our marae, our tribal areas or in our community sectors, there was a real fear of, well, a lot of lip service around collaboration. Actually, from a um, tribal point of view, I guess what we recognise is that after having dealt with the first wave of colonisation, we're now dealing with the second, which is this whole group of elite Māori men and women who have gone through an, a mainstream education process and really opting into that kind of commercial, individualistic uh, mindset. And so about five years ago, we started to do some work around how can we really cut across that? How can we start rebuilding our collectives um, and our sense of collective ownership and responsibility? We found actually uh, one of our elders had been reading some of Peter Block's work and he gave us the structure of community to read and actually from that we really recognized a lot of the fundamental kind of teachings in that book resonated with some of our cultural values what we developed from there was really a program around awakening our communities and we've been doing it for about four years a four month long program with about 30 random mm. people from our community it's been based on that book on those series of conversations but I would say it's really been 
with our flavour added to it. A lot of our own cultural thinking, our own values, our karakia, our proverbs, our mm -hmm. processes have been incorporated into it. So we've been doing that for about four or five years. We have two formidable elders that have been spearheading that work. They are the main facilitators. And so when this opportunity came up to be present and touch and smell and hear directly from Peter Block and John McKnight and Walter, basically they came to us and said, here's an opportunity, do you want to take up that opportunity on our behalf? So it was really like from across the, the world, our elders were recognising that we would hear from some other elders. It sounds as though we've been sent, but actually, you know, part of the work that they've been doing is around trying to prepare this next generation to fill the seats once they're gone. So they're very mindful of the space that they're leaving for us to step into. Part of that is actually around expanding our, our worldview. That's really what's brought us here, is to expand our worldview and for us to take back those learnings and, again, add our own flavour to it. So this expanding of a worldview, this happens over the course of generations and folks are sending y'all to come do that work here. How far back, how many generations back does... Uh, your work with Taranaki and the, um, the organization go? So the, the name of the organization actually goes back to uh, 1881. Wow. It was actually a, a message or an instruction left to the woman of our region by our prophets. It was during a time when our peace village uh, of Pariaka was invaded by troops and the message that was left for the remaining woman, because all of our men were taken away and imprisoned, was e tu tama wahine, which is basically those prophets were sending the women of the village to stand up, to take on the roles and responsibilities as a result of all of the men being taken away and to really continue the practices of peaceful resistance. And so that was the term, e tu tamawahine te wao te kore. And so the name of our organisation is Tu Tamawahine or Taranaki. Every generation um, since 1881 has held that message in different ways, depending on the context of the time and the communities of the time. During my great-great-grandmother's time, mm -hmm. it was absolutely about survival. The whole of our region was confiscated in terms of lands. You know, villages destroyed and people in our communities devastated through colonisation. The message and the way in which they carried out their work is different to how we now carry the, <clears throat> the work of the five generations later. So I imagine that the context for colonisation in New Zealand is unique unto itself. Uh, could you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, our region, a little bit different to other areas, what people term the New Zealand Wars started here and in, in our area. A lot of other tribal areas, land was confiscated after war. Mm -hmm. In our area, it was confiscated before and was the cause of war. And so we had 40 years of conflict going on in our region when we had entire tribal areas confiscated what our people did was and and i'm talking about many many tribes came together and retreated and formed a new collective what we've called our, a peace village you know for their own survival there was a huge emphasis on um the message that was and still exists today the prophets and the people of the village upheld was actually a christian message mm. it was uh which is actually a very common message. It's the Christmas message. It's the universal message of peace and love. And so our people came together for the survival 
and they refused to engage in armed conflict, but they still went about a resistance movement. And ways in which they did that were women of Taranaki went out and removed the survey pairs. Um, there was still disobedience, really. Mm actually not about engaging in conflict, but we're about making sure we were asserting our presence in our own lands. And so there were teams that went out and ploughed the lands and they were arrested and replaced by by mm. more people that went out and ploughed the lands. They would remove fences and those people would be arrested and taken mm. away. And it all culminated in the village was invaded by troops in 1881, which is where we get our instruction from. Incredible. That context helps both paint a picture and, and paint the significance of the, the work you're doing. Without sounding too on the nose here, uh, how does a American community organizing skills begin to intersect with that. So I'll back it up a little bit here. Uh, um, a, a, lot of, a lot of the framing that we've used from, uh, from the work of Peter Block and John McKnight in particular around uh, the, the gifts of a local community, the way that that expresses itself in, uh, in commitment and covenant in a way that creates associations and then how those navigate relationships with institutions. I'd imagine that's similar, but uh, pretty different than the way that we might expect them to work, at least in the States. So I'm, I'm curious, when you came across this work around structures for community and belonging and, uh, and where you saw the, the correlation? When we first started to look at Peter Block's work around five years ago, it was at a time when we as a, an organization were really struggling to find a framework for what we wanted to do around reconnecting people and asking our staff, our immediate members of our families and our communities to actually think a little bit deeper about what we want to see happen in our own community. What we weren't comfortable with as an organisation was this idea that we are the professionals and families need to come to us in order to get the advice and the knowledge and we're the holders of all the power and the knowledge and the skills and the tools in order to help them. When, if you think about the kaupapa that we, the, the broader purpose that we have around liberation and that we have the knowledge within our own culture around how to heal and be together. We were coming into conflict. We actually, we looked within our own country. We looked at some of our own teachings. What we couldn't find was the language that would help us create a container for the change that we were wanting to to do in our community, which was really just to awaken people. Because there was a lot of apathy, there was a lot of low voter turnout, the conversations on our marae, on our places where we gather, had changed from a place where you could have full and robust conversations and debates around issues that were impacting on us all to an absolute fear of any form of conflict and dissent. We looked at a number of, of places and really, I guess what we found was that Peter Block's work, The Structure of Community, gave us a framework to build on because we recognised in it some very fundamental things that already existed in our culture. It gave us the ability to kind of translate in a community framework some of the cultural nuances which actually are not well known in our own lands. We knew that we couldn't just work with our own. We couldn't just work with Maori people. We wanted to make a place and a container for change that actually embraced the whole of our communities. And in order to do that, we had to find some common language across 
cultures. And that's really what Peter's work did for us. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah. So in a sense, folks that were working in modernist professional arrangements and those that were from, I think you said internationally would be described as indigenous situations, mm. that the language would be so different. You add to that then a, a power dynamic, a fear of dissent, a kind of loss of agency, and a real challenge for folks to, uh, to collaborate together, I guess. I guess what we really liked about a lot of Peter's work as well is that, you know, we come from an oral language society. We have a culture that historically was about the collective and it was about relationships. You know, we have many different proverbs which talk to that re- continually are reframing our mindset to think of the we as opposed to the I. A lot of Peter's work was actually about connecting people and being more considerate about the relationships that we have with one another and the conversations that we have with one another. That was really something quite different. We knew, I guess, that that was the overall approach that would work for us because we are, you know, we are an, an oral language culture, but we'd forgotten to talk. We'd forgotten how to talk to one another. The structure of community provided enough of a framework to keep it loose, but also framed and enabled people to really reflect and contribute in a way that I had never seen across any of our communities. Yeah. If you're willing to share from some of those gatherings and some, some of that work, maybe some areas specifically like how did making space for dissent bring forth a deeper commitment? Or how was it that in asking about possibility, it brought forth agency? The way in which we went about inviting people to participate in a adult learning journey and structured around each one of these conversations is we did it deliberately over a four-month period. And so it allowed people enough time to really reflect and digest and think about each one of these conversations. It wasn't a, here's all the information, here's a book, go read it. We would provide some thinking in relation to possibility or Dissent, we would provide some local context. I mean, for Dissent, um, we we talked about there's an, actually an entire iwi, a tribe in our region, which is named for their ability to dissent. Uh-huh. Um, when you start to actually share some of that knowledge, that actually this was quite normal in our culture. And in fact, this is the iwi, Tangatakitahi. There was an entire tribe. They were known for their ability to speak truth and to be authentic in, in their dissent. So we would provide some examples, we would provide some knowledge around it, but actually we would ask the participants to give their own keynotes. We've done four years, uh, participant groups of 30 in in every program twice a year. You can imagine the numbers. There's something like 300 people that have done this. And I can tell you now, every single interpretation of each (laughs) conversation has been unique. They've all given their own examples. They would talk about their own opportunities where they, they were required to think in a possibility way. They would talk about their own processes around invitation, how they invite people into commitment. In Peter's book, Community, the Structure of Belonging, he writes, if the essence of community is to create structures for belonging, then we are constantly inviting people who are strangers to us and one another into the circle. An invitation is the antidote to our projection on those we think are the problem. We take back our projection by extending ourselves to strangers. We make the invitation in the face of our own isolation, having been waited to be invited, wanting others to take up the first step, wanting others to reach out to us, to acknowledge us, to give us a gold star that never came at the right moment. This will never happen, so we're obliged to take the first step. 
What became increasingly obvious in this conversation is that both Afina and Glenn have taken steps of vulnerability toward one another. We go deeper into this as I ask Glenn to share a little more from the perspective of the powerful or the colonizer and what the risks are in a friendship where that power dynamic is in play. I look um, at the journey that we're on. And for many organizations and religious groups and non-religious groups, it's that token. Um, so we, yeah, the foundation of New Zealand is based on uh, what is known as the Treaty of Waitangi, which was signed in 1840 between the British Crown and representatives of Māori tribe around New Zealand. So for many organizations, you always have a, a policy statement around we will honor the Treaty of Waitangi and our partnership agreements, but it's always in word and on paper. So I think for me and for Encido, we've we're constantly asking the question, what does that look like with its sleeves rolled up in real life? And so what I come to is being authentic and not just paying lip service, but also always realizing the place of privilege that we come from. Because being white, if you look at history, we are where we are today because of things we've done and things we've gathered and the privilege that we have. So it's always checking in on that. And so having friendship with Afina or with Tutam Wahini or other local iwi or hapu or tribal groups, it's... My biggest one, actually, I think, is just having is learning to listen and not have a solution or try and fix things. And also, the other thing is one of the writings of history um, when all this was going on around Parihaka and the, this peace village and what Athena was talking about earlier. There's a line I, that always sticks with me that they taught us to look up to God and pray while they took the land from under our feet. Oh, yeah. I guess for me, that always weighs heavily on, I think it weighs heavily now in terms of, I guess, the, the stuff from Peter Block and the, the, the reading I've done for a long time of the possibility of that, as opposed to the burden or the, the shame of that. It's now, what is the possibility that I come from a tradition that was part of these awful things? And here and now, it's not me righting the wrongs and paying Māori out or uh, it's it's how do I, I guess, walk alongside, but also know that it's Māori have solutions for Māori. And I think for so long, again, as a white, privileged New Zealander, often white people, us white organisations, have come in with solutions to fix what we created. But I think it's now going, actually, no, no, this it's not for us to fix. It's for us, am I right? I don't know, am I right, Afina? It's for us to, to quietly walk alongside and listen and learn and see where we can have friendship and partner with, with our Indigenous friends. So, you know, insofar as I can share uh, th- this experience as a as a white privileged person in the States, it, it sounds like you're describing that fixing is a way of managing anxiety, like anxiety that's the byproduct of my ancestors' actions and anxiety that's shared by others in the, in the present. So I hear you suggesting there's this alternative that includes abiding with it, being present, and listening to that anxiety um, with the other. Yeah, that's totally true. And I think for the last 20 years, since the early 1990s, there's sort of been, obviously, there's been these sort of phases in our in our um, history in New Zealand of yeah, trying to fix things or trying to right wrongs. And so in the, I think in the early 90s, it was this acknowledging Māori and everyone learning to, well, some people learning to announce it right or to have a karakia, which is a prayer or something at each, to include the culture. But often it was very tokenistic. And again, it was done from a place of privilege and power. Um, and we will include you and we'll show that we are inclusive because we open and close with a prayer in Māori. As opposed for us as an organisation, we keep asking ourselves, you know, what does it mean to, I hate going on about being authentic because it's a bit of a buzzword or an, or an F word, but, you know, how do we actually, I guess, how do we be real? Which 
if we're real, there's probably going to be some consequences and some... Like in terms, if I'm to be a real friend of Athena, then then there are things that mm. I probably will have to do or lay down at times to build yeah, I mean, that friendship. It's, it makes me think of uh, John's work when he's talking about friendship, that, uh, that we're, when we move past that kind of transactional relationship, we, uh, we both come into a place of vulnerability. And I, I can imagine, Afina, that... Uh, even doing this sort of work, um, borrowing from a Western framework, partnering with Westerners, uh, and, and then the depth of this friendship that you're talking about, that that the pace of it and uh, um, just just the nature of of that would, is going to have a sense of cost on your side as well. Yeah, on a cultural level, it's very difficult to, you know, because a lot of our traditions, you know, for instance, we would never even ask, what's your name? So for us, the, the, a similar question is actually called waikwe, which means from which waters do you come? And so name, genealogy, all those types of things, what you do is actually not even the whole introductory point. The the whole core waikwe is also... A, you know, so from which rivers, which which waters have sustained you? So that's talking mm. about the environment that you're from, but it also it is also a recognition of the ways in which we interact. We actually have women as the as a there's a centrality around our language with female elements as well, and so it's also talking about who's your mother, mm. from which waters. We've had to almost kind of put some of those cultural aspects to the side in order to do some of the work that we've been doing. And some of our elders, um, you know, have cautioned us about some of the things that we've been doing. But the thing is, is that they're there to correct if they need to, they're there to caution us. But what I've found is so long as there is an analysis and there's a thinking behind why we are changing some of our traditions, then they're actually okay with that. And I think that's one of the great things about having that kind of intergenerational support. You know, we're not locked in stone. You know, culture should be there to support us and help us, not restrict us. This has been the Common Good Podcast, conversations at the intersection of place and belonging and remembering. Also look in the show notes of this week's episode for more about Athena and Glenn, as well as a link to information about the challenges of colonialism in New Zealand. Common Good is a collaborative production of The Hive, a center for contemplation, art, and action, and Common Change, eliminating personal economic isolation. We're produced by myself, Troy Bronsink, and Joey Taylor, and music is written and produced by Jeff Gorman. So we have a lot of fun at the end of these episodes thinking of uh, ways to not take ourselves too seriously. And uh, Joey has helpfully put together this compilation of uh, all of the earnest ways that I'm really uh, engaging with these interviews. Wow. Mm. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Ah. Uh, oh, yeah. Wow.